Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Education Movement Podcast. My name is Henry Rivera, and I will be the host for the show. In this episode, we are joined by the Brazilian queen, Raiza Lisboa, who weighs in on the celebration of Latinx Heritage Month. Throughout our conversation, Raiza and I discuss her life journey as the daughter of an educator, the reasons why months of heritage are celebrated, the dynamics of inclusion in the Latinx Heritage Month, and much more. I hope you enjoy this episode just as much as I enjoyed making it. See you on the other side. Here we go. Você fala português? Parlez-vous français? Hablas espanol? You speak English? Well, you're in luck today because we have a beautiful guest with us. Her name is Riza Lisboa. She is the Managing Director, Program Partner, and In-House Coach and Consultant Program for Leaders at Teach for America. Riza is a graduate of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she studied War and Peace and Defense and Francophone Studies. In 2009, she joined Teach for America, where she taught French and Portuguese for three years. She was also a finalist for the Sue Lehman Award for Excellence in Teaching, then became a TFA staff member as a coach for new core members in 2012. She's currently pursuing her master's degree in educational transformation with a concentration in advocacy and policy at Georgetown University. In her free time, Riza likes to do Olympic weightlifting, watch Premier League games, watch TED Talks, and read. So without further ado, I'd like to formally introduce Ms. Riza Lisboa. How are you today? I'm doing great, Henry. Thanks for that lovely introduction. You have no idea how much I've been looking forward to this. Um, can I tell you the story, as a matter of fact, as to why I felt so compelled to have you on? Of course, sure. <laughs> so here's what happened. Um, when you first joined, like the, you know, I first met you and when we had a, a meeting among coaches within Teach for America, and when you joined, you asked me, how do you pronounce your name? And I was like, oh, just, you know, good old fashioned Henry. And you're like, okay, I wasn't sure if it was Henry or Henry or Henri. And I was like, whoa, that's, no one's ever asked me that. So, so I was like, okay, who is this person? I got to have her on my friends list. That's so kind of you. Um, so growing up with a name like Riza, I've had my name mispronounced so many times. And I really do make a concerted effort both, you know, when I was in classroom and now on a day-to-day -day basis to just make sure that that people's names get pronounced correctly because one, such a huge part of a person's identity. And then two, just like living, having my name been mispronounced so many times, like Reza, Reza, Rezo, all sorts of different iterations. And, you know, I usually just say it's just Riza and I'll correct the person until they get it right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thanks. Yeah. I appreciate well, it. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, and if I ever mispronounce it, which I doubt I will. <laughs> and here's why. It's just there's so I feel like there's so much you can do with your name. You know, it to me, it sounds so much like the words rise up, which I'm sure you've heard of that plenty. And so I would, yep, I just, I would play with that way too much. So I, first time you said it, I was like, oh, that sounds like rise up, rise up. I can do that easy. So no, <laughs> good. And I, so I, I've just been looking forward to actually having you on and having a conversation with you. And on top of that, just actually building like an everlasting friendship because you seem like I'm very compelled by your life story. Speaking of which, um, would you mind telling the listeners a little more about yourself and who you are? Sure. So I am Riza Cruz Lisboa, the daughter of Ivana and Cesar. 
And I was born in, in Salvador Bahia in Brazil. And uh, if anybody here knows a little bit about Brazil, that's in the Northeast part of the country. It's like the equivalent of the American South. We're culturally extremely diverse. Um, and Salvador in particular is known as sort of the center of, of Afro-Brazilian culture. So I, I grew up in a really racially diverse family, um, surrounded by lots and lots of cousins. My mom was one of 10, my dad one of six. So that was kind of the environment that I grew up in. And my parents decided to immigrate to Miami, you know, when I was 10 years old. And, you know, I started school, public school here in fourth grade. That came with its challenges because I didn't speak English. So as you know, as an English language learner, that came with a series of, you know, both positive and negative experiences at school. But I would say sort of the most sort of monumental of those experiences was actually my parents' divorce. Um, my parents split about a year and a half after we moved here. And my mom went back to Brazil to um, continue teaching. She was a biology teacher. And a few years later, when my mom came to visit, you know, she would often, you know, go back to Brazil, come visit every six months, spend time with me after my parents split because I stayed with my dad. So my mom was actually found murdered in Jacksonville. We don't know the details of how it happened. You know, the facts that we do know was that my mom wasn't a proficient English speaker. Who knows what happened? Um, This is, you know, this was in 2002 right after 9-11 and, you know, you and I know the xenophobia xenophobia that was going on at that time. And, but anyways, my mom's body was found there and I actually didn't know this, but at the time I was an undocumented immigrant and so was my father. So when I was telling my dad that um, as my, you know, mother's body was being sent back to Brazil, Um, so that her funeral could take place amongst family members. My dad told me that I couldn't go because I was undocumented and so was he. So um, he said, you know, we could go, but we might never be able to come back. And so that's, you know, kind of, I I don't want to go back. I want to be able to stay here and I want you to stay with me. So at that point, you know, I decided with my dad at like 14 years of age, not to go to my mom's funeral. And I remember feeling devastated and also feeling like, feeling extremely angry. Um, And that was, you know, what I felt, despite the negative experiences that I'd had in school and some of the challenges, I felt like that was the true, very first injustice that I experienced in life. And there was this awakening in my mind that we lived in a world that was extremely unjust, right? Like if you could keep a kid from going to see say goodbye to her mother because of a paper, right? Because of a document. I felt like that was not a world that I was okay living in, that I needed to do something about it, that I needed to do something to change it. So yeah, that's that's kind of like, I would say like that moment in my life that, that sort of really changed my existence. And I could tell more about what came after, but I would say that's one of those, you know, one of those experiences that truly, truly shaped who I am. Yeah what we call those like the the turning points in your life mm-hmm. and no for sure i i think that's that's insane couldn't even imagine and maybe just to shift gears and still kind of focusing on on your life story so you being from bahia 
means obviously you spoke Portuguese. Did you, where did you learn to speak French? In school. So I, so I learned English in about like three to six months, which was funny because, you know, back in Brazil, I'd started in theory taking English in first grade, but I was a terrible student in English. I pretty much failed every test from first to fourth grade, um, much to my mother's chagrin. Um, and I remember her telling me like, we got to work on this. And I'm like, well, it's just like not my strength. And I would pretty much ace every other test, like Portuguese, especially math, you name it. But English were, you know, those were always my lowest grades. Somehow I picked up English in like three to six months. So immersion really worked for me, like being in that environment where I only spoke English. And then in about two years, so this is sixth grade, got to go to middle school and basically pick Spanish or French. And I thought, you know, all my friends speak Spanish. I feel like I'm learning Spanish by osmosis by just hearing it all the time. Why not just take French? So I started taking French in sixth grade and just sort of went on to take it all the way through through college, mainly because I fell in love with it. And as another romance language, I just, I felt like it wasn't, it wasn't that difficult. So I just went for it. Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. I, I remember taking French in high school and, you know, I didn't, I didn't go that far with it. It's just you know, two years. But I also felt like I was like, this really isn't that bad. It, it, it feels like something I can, you know, I can pick up on. And I, too, I was an ELL student for a couple of years. I came to the U.S. when I was nine. And I couldn't tell you when, like, how long it took me to, to pick up on the language. Because, you know, it, it's hard as a kid to know, like, okay, I'm fluent now. You know what I mean? Like, you go through this process where, and, and it's, it's, I think the research on this is pretty insane. Like, there's no telling when you shift from thinking in one language to the next, you know? Like, do you think in Portuguese still or do you think in English now? That's such a good question. I probably think mostly in English until I get stuck and I can't think of a word that I'm trying to say. And then I kind of like do the, do the rounds. I'm like, do I know this word in Spanish? Do I know it in Portuguese? Do I know it in French? And then I try to see if I can translate that word from like one of those languages back to English. Um, yeah. 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 I, I hear you. So, okay. I, I ask because I know you know, when, when you only speak one language, obviously you, you think in that one language, but I don't think in Spanish anymore. And I, I know I always have people asking me that. And, I, and I, I don't know when that changed. I just know it was somewhere in the process. And anyway, I, I, I love talking to people about languages, specifically those who, who, you know, learned how to speak the same languages as me. So you're, you're, you're one up on me right now, but we'll get into that later. Let's talk about what got you into education. So what got you into education and then what got you into coaching? So I think the education story, you know, sort of where I, why I shared a little bit about what happened with my mom. My mom was an educator um, and I think I grew up just like seeing her in classroom like she would take me to school with her and sometimes I would watch her teach I grew up with her grading exams and talking about the importance of an education and my mom in particular taught public school students in Brazil um, and was extremely passionate about ensuring that students had access to an excellent education regardless of where they grew up and regardless of the type of school that they went to I myself went to public school for my first four grades 
and sorry, went to private school for the first four grades that I was in Brazil. My mom herself only went to public schools her entire life. So she knew what the public education system was like and then essentially didn't want me to be a part of it because she talked about the lack of resources that students had. And she felt like she had finally, you know, gotten to a place where she could afford to send me to private school. But then I would often ask her, mom, why don't you just teach at my school? Like we're literally in our backyard. And she would say, she would always say, you know, Fida, which is daughter in Portuguese, she'd say, Fida, you know, it's, I would rather teach where I teach because I feel like that's where the kids deserve the most highly trained teachers. And my mom was, she went to a federal university in Bahia, which means, you know, she had the, the equivalent of like an Ivy League, right? Like she won a scholarship. She was a highly competitive applicant and was a really, really strong um, student and was trained to be an educator. So it, it never, I never really understood it. It kind of made me annoyed because it meant my mom had to take, she didn't drive, only my dad did. She would take like two buses across the city and would leave very early in the morning and wouldn't get back until later, which often meant sometimes I was waiting for her to pick me up. But she was really devoted to, to her students and felt extremely passionate about giving them the best possible education and often talked about her own philosophies of, of teaching in life. So I think that was my first sort of, you know, entry point into an interest in the teaching profession. But then kind of as I got older, you know, things happened. And I was, after what happened to my mom, I was like, maybe I'll be an immigration lawyer because like, this is, you know, where I can advocate for people and truly make a difference for people who experience what I experienced. But then when I got to Chapel Hill and, you know, I thought that I'd been so adequately prepared by Miami-Dade County, you know, Miami-Dade County Public Schools. And I was, you know, in theory, I went to very good schools. But when I got to college, I wasn't as prepared as a lot of my peers. Um, and that kind of opened my eyes and it made me question, like, if I went to all of these great schools, right, that everybody said were great schools, why is it that I'm struggling, you know, my first several semesters of college? And that sort of opened my eyes and made me question the education that I received until, you know, sort of my senior year. I think many people know the story. I, someone from Teach for America reached out, a recruiter, and they started telling me about what it might be like to teach students who perhaps were not necessarily getting the best education, all because of their, where they were born, their zip code, or because, you know, their schools were underfunded. And there was a part of that um, service, right? That part of like giving back, particularly to my community, that really appealed to me. And I felt, you know, I was about ready to go to the University of Miami for law. I'd been accepted. I was excited to go back home to Miami. And I felt like, you know, if I go to law school, chances are I'll have all of this debt from going to law school. I'm probably never going to consider teaching. Let's do this now. And then, you know, I'll put these law school dreams on hold because they're already there. Um, I've been accepted. It's not even a question of will I go. It's just a question of when. And, you know, the rest is the history. I started teaching, fell in love with it, fell in love with my students, fell in love with um, my community at community of parents and colleagues at Miami Central Senior High and and I just didn't want to stop and I I felt like you know education was 
more than just those two years, it made me realize that so many of my experiences that I had growing up could have been made worse if I had not gotten an access to an education, right? And many of the circumstances that I lived in, kind of growing up in a low-income community, not necessarily having access to certain resources, having love, having, you know, family that supported me. And like, in this world that we live in, it's not enough, right? Like if I hadn't set, been set up to at least attend college um, and get to and through college, even with, you know, the imperfect education that I received, my life would be fundamentally different right now. Um, I might be in a very, very different place. And so I work so that all kids, but especially kids from Black and Brown communities, from marginalized communities, from immigrant communities, can truly get an access to an education that they deserve. Because I know the difference that that made for my life, and I see the difference that has made for the lives of so many students that I've gotten to work with, um, so many of the core members or Teach for America core members I've gotten to work with. And you know, it truly makes me a believer that that education truly is one of those major access points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For equity. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think, I mean, most people, I don't think they would disagree with you. You know, I, I, I would, I can very much relate to, you know, to, to that, not only belief, but to the story as well, you know, just kind of go into a school that, I don't know, can only prepare you so much with what they have. And, you know, I think for me, graduating from high school, I just wasn't competitive enough to go to a school like UCLA. That was like my dream school. And so I, for, I was very fortunate that I lived near a community college that was very competitive in terms of, uh, you know, transfers. So I, I, I lucked out, you know, I, I went there knowing like, okay, I, I know what I want. I know what I need to do. And then, you know, I, I was able to do it. And funny enough, you know, I, too, I worked at a law firm for about a year and a half thinking that maybe this might be a good path for me <clears throat> until I learned that a lot of the a lot of the attorneys who worked at the law firm where I used to work at were miserable, but not like not the ones who were very passionate, the ones who just like loved what they did were thriving. The ones who just had the competency were not happy. You know, and I was like, ah, oh, there's gotta be something else. You know, there's gotta be something else out there. So and then and then, and then I ended up here. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you uh, also about the the month that we're in. We are in the middle of celebrating the Latinx Heritage Month, and you know, I I, I think you're just such a great person to ask because your I think your background is extremely unique, and I just think very well fitting for you know, like I think for this topic. But let's just start by by acknowledging like why is it why in your opinion is it so important to have months like you know latinx heritage month and black history month and months like that that's such a good question i feel like you know part of part of the reason why we have these months has been because of the systematic erasure of of people of color in this country right we wouldn't need a Black History Month, a Latinx History Month, and Asian American Pacific Islander Month if um, these folks or Indigenous Peoples Day, which is coming up on the 12th, if these folks were 
regularly represented in a positive way for their contributions in the media, in our history books. And so we, in some, you know, sort of way, attempt to have these months, right, or days which mark a period of time which we bring awareness, right, to the contributions of these folks to, to the United States as a country, right? And it's kind of sad, and I wish I could say it's like, oh, we do it because it's like, you know, we just want to celebrate. Yeah, we absolutely want to celebrate the contributions of Black folks and Latinx folks, which, you know, for me in particular, thinking about, you know, Black History Month being so powerful, like my rights as an immigrant in this country would not exist were not for the, uh, the Black folks who fought for the Civil Rights Act that got passed just years before the Immigration Rights Act, right, which... Um, got rid of basically quotas from specific countries and banned certain countries, people from certain countries from entering the United States as immigrants. So, yeah. So, in a nutshell, that's why we do this, right? To raise awareness. And months like this, sadly, would not be necessary if if we all saw ourselves represented. You know, I was thinking Pride Month, right? There's so many others. I'm gonna sure I'm sure I'll miss some, but if we all as in folks from marginalized communities saw ourselves represented regularly every day um, as a part of American life, they wouldn't be necessary, right? That's probably why there's not White History Month because white folks are not suffering from a systematic lack of representation in this country. In fact, they are way overrepresented. Yeah, yeah, of course. And usually in a very positive way, right? <laughs> a very positive representation. Yeah. Now, I, I think for me, I, I took a special interest in your take because of your Brazilian background. I think that's always been a, a, a tricky thing. I'm always more than happy to, you know, to, enga to, to engage Brazilians in any kind of Latinx celebrations. But I, have you always felt that way that, that people, you know, the people in the Latinx community are, are inclusive of Brazilians? And then, like, I guess, what's your take on that whole thing? Should Brazilians be considered Latinx? Oh, absolutely. So here's, it's interesting that you said that because it's, it's complicated, right? The official name is Hispanic Heritage Month, right? But in Teach for America, um, where we work, there's been a shift, right, where it's uh, Latinx Heritage Month in an attempt to be more inclusive of nations that are not considered Hispanic, right? Like, Haiti, Belize, um, the Guyanas, right, Brazil. So I just keep thinking about how, yeah, we absolutely should be considered, right? Because I think the one thing that we all share is that, and this is like fact across the board, we're all former colonies, right? I think in terms of cultural and linguistic heritage, we're all so different and so culturally diverse. And I think this offers this like point of unity, right, to celebrate all of us who have in a lot of ways as immigrants been racialized in this country. The reality is Latinx is, you know, and some people might debate me on this. Some people say fight me, but um, I say Latinx is an ethnicity. It's not a race, right? And yet Latinx as a group, Latinx folks as a group have been racialized in this country alongside black folks, alongside uh, Asian folks, so it's, it's really important to remember that we are a group, you know, we're potentially even a cultural group, an ethnic group. So yes, please include us. 
And there's also debate. There might be some Brazilians who say like, oh, I'm not Latino, I'm Brazilian, right? I've heard that. Um, and the reason why I've always fought against it is, you know, my mom, ever since I was little, she would always, as a teacher, you know, would always explain to me like geography and things like that. And she would explain like, okay, so this is a geography. This is Latin America. Here are all the countries. She's like, we are Latinos, which is not, you know, gender inclusive, but we are, then she would say, we are Latinos. You are a Latina. Um, and then it wasn't, you know, when I moved to the U.S. that all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'm Latina. I'm like, no, I've known this as part of, you know, my identity, my entire life. And I know there are Brazilian folks who disagree. And I think particularly Brazilian folks who identify as white or having a European heritage, which is, you know, partially my case. I have European heritage, but I also have African heritage. I also have indigenous heritage which is, you know, this, my family's heritage. And I am a product of colonialism. And yeah. that is why I hold, that's why I hold these heritages and this ancestry in my body. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know what? I, I asked that question, especially because of the conversations I've had with other Brazilian folks who have, who say they don't identify as Latinx and, and to me, I always thought the only reason why you don't, the only reason why you don't is I think it's because of the language. Uh, you know, if you think of it on a surface level, because why, what's the, what's the other reason? I think we have like all the shades of color in Latin America. And I'd say the, the thing that unites us, you know, as like a Latinx group, why people, you know, when they come to the, to the United States, why they get more comfortable is because you speak the same language around one another. You know, and so I think, I think the only reason why you don't, you know, or why you say that you're not identifying as a Latinx person is because you are, you know, like you speak a different language. Would you disagree? You know, that could be possibly it. But so my partner is Colombian and with him, I think that's where like my Spanish really took off because that's like, you know, we both share different idiomatic expressions with each other. And I can't think of any right now, but I promise you over the last, you know, almost five years that we've been dating, the amount of expressions that are literally the same and just happen to be one in Portuguese and the other in Spanish are just wild. So there are aspects of like even culture that, you know, the language is different. I mean, Portugal and, and Spain are literally next to each other, right? Like they have shared cultures at one point, they were a single country. So when we think about having you know, about those two countries as colonial powers, they were very similar, right? So a lot of the approaches and practices that they took um, in their process of colonization in Latin America or, you know, in Brazil and, um, and the Spanish-speaking countries was very similar, right? Like when we think about the only thing that split Brazil between, you know, the Portuguese and the Spanish was the Treaty of uh, Tordesillas. And if it wasn't for that, like, who knows, they might have been, you know, they would, they might have colonized Brazil almost entirely and it would have been maybe a hodgepodge where parts of Brazil we'd speak Portuguese, other parts we'd speak Spanish and, but a lot of the practices were similar. They both, you know, both countries obliterated indigenous folks, right? Both countries did real damage 
to, to kidney, kidnapped enslaved Africans, right? Like there are lots of things that they did. Both groups, you know, were all about intermarrying these groups, intermarrying indigenous women, um, enslaved women, right? Like there is so much that you can see, like these approaches were similar. Yes, they were speaking different languages, but in terms of a cultural legacy, um, you can see so many similarities in, in ideologies about race in Latin America that seriously do not differ whether you're in Colombia or you're in Brazil, right? But to your point about language, yeah, sometimes I think there is a part of you speak this language, I speak that language, but I think we spend enough time together and it becomes very clear that there's more similarities than actual differences. Um, at the end of the day. And so, yeah, I identify very, very strongly with my Latinx identity. And I think the more I've come to know aspects of, you know, other, obviously not all Spanish-speaking countries are the same, but know more about cultures in Spanish-speaking countries, the more I see of myself, not less. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. Great perspective. This is exactly why I wanted to talk to you. As a matter of fact, um, you know, speaking of, of being in these Spanish-speaking countries, how inclusive do you feel like the Latinx community has been here towards Brazilians? No, that's interesting. I can't speak for all Brazilians, um, but I can speak for my experience. And what I'll say is I've, I think I've felt the entry point for being a Brazilian in most Latinx spaces is usually soccer. And it's a good thing that yeah, um, yeah. Brazilians are generally perceived to be really great soccer players, have a really great soccer team. So I feel like that's always an entry point where people can have a conversation. I think in terms of inclusivity, um, I grew up in Miami, right? So I also think that offers a unique perspective of like um, just the concentration of Colombians and Venezuelans and Cubans and Brazilians um, and we kind of end up just being this sort of hodgepodge of you know different groups we got Dominicans Haitians like we just I, I could literally go on and on and on so my experience has been that I have felt often included as opposed to excluded something that I think uh, could play a factor or a role sometimes is also the fact that I'm a light-skinned Latina right so I think that can also play a role in whether I am included or excluded, right? Like oh, yeah. having this identity sort of affords me sort of this, um, this borderlands identity, right? Where I can be either or, I can be in white spaces, I can be in people of color spaces, and sometimes I can be in neither, right? Like where neither side sees me as belonging. Yeah. Um, so I think that level of complexity has made me feel for the most part included, sometimes feeling like an outsider, right? Like, no soy de aquí, ni soy de allá, like type of idea. I'm neither from here nor from there, but you know, I just kind of, I kind of go with the flow and always keep in mind that like, when I'm in a space where I might not entirely feel comfortable, I often ask myself why that's the case. And it usually makes me curious. And I'll say, why is it that I don't feel comfortable? Is it because I don't know about this culture? And so I feel like not at ease right now. If that's the case, I need to like, you know, perk up my ears a little bit and get really curious so that I can learn 
from watching, from talking to people, from being in a relationship with people. And I think the outcome is usually that I feel, you know, welcomed and included in spaces, which I know is not always an option for folks who don't necessarily share, you know, that phenotype or that, you know, actual perceived racial identity, right? Some folks don't get the choice to belong or not to belong or to blend or not to blend in because the second they walk into a space, they've already been pegged and racialized and believed to be something. So I think that's also important to acknowledge. Miami me lo confirmó. Gente de Sora. Puerto Rico me lo regaló. shift gears a little bit and then ask you more about some prominent figures that you you know that in your opinion should get more recognition than they do so in your opinion who is a prominent figure that you think deserves some recognition during latinx heritage month so i like one came to mind and now i'm like should i have come up with others but i yeah, you can name more than one too. Uh, there's there's I, no rules here. I really, really love um, Paulo Freire. If you've ever read um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, I think his contributions in the field of critical pedagogy and really helping reshape the way people think about education, right? And how to educate a student as like seeing them as not empty vessels, but um, empty vessels to be filled as, but as like whole people who are coming in with life experiences and and assets, right? So I just, when I think about an education figure that has truly inspired me and in a lot of ways helped shift the way I think about education or the way education should be, he's the first one that comes to mind. And particularly because he's from the Northeast of Brazil, which is where I'm from, which in Brazil in particular, the Northeast often gets a, a bad rep for, you know, people talk about it being poor, being full of uneducated people, or having, you know, folks that have nothing to contribute to the country, which I challenge, right? Like, these are folks that have contributed to the culture of the country, both, you know, in books that they've written, music that they've crafted. So many of the musical geniuses in Brazil have hailed from the Northeast. So this is really like my desire to like push back and say like good things come from the Northeast, right? And often it's because, you know, the Northeast tends to be the darkest part of the country. So the most Afrocentric, right? So then the stereotypes come from that. It's they're really just racist stereotypes that try to perpetuate negative things about that part of the country, being poor, not being educated, all of which are not true. And so anytime there's an opportunity to celebrate a Northeastern Brazilian, particularly if they're black or brown, um, I get really, really excited about it. I'll also say there's a second one, Machado Jesses, which is a very well-known, uh, you're nodding your head, so you know him too. So Machado Jesses is actually an Afro-Brazilian. Um, there was an article that came out a few years ago that actually proved that Machado Jesses was an Afro-Brazilian, 
But what happened was when he was accepted to the Academy of Letters in Brazil, they literally whitewashed his, his, uh, his picture. So when you look at some of the pictures of him, you see that he's, he almost looks like a white man. So just like really desiring to push back on the narrative that the greatest Brazilian writer is a white man, um, he is actually an Afro-Latinx man. Um, wow. So... I actually yeah, I didn't that's a know that. story. So you can look it up and and just see. Mashad Jesse's is a black man. He's a a badass. I don't know if this word's allowed in um, is, in this podcast, is. but he's a total badass, and and that really really matters to the storytelling to black children living in Brazil and trying to see themselves in in Brazilian literature and and those who are aspiring authors and and also like the legacy of of Brazil as a country, right? And and yeah. Latin American literature, like who gets to have that legacy? So no, I, I mean, I also, I, I love the the intimacy in which you, you know, you associate with with Paulo Freire because, you know, he's he's a he's someone that I think most people who study education have to read, right? Like you have to read his work, and sometimes don't get me wrong, like I think we all appreciate the you know just like the uh, critical race theory and. Yeah, not doing like the traditional banking system, I think, as he called it. But I think when you're someone who's like, and I'm from his hometown, and like, this is the history behind it, it I, I feel like it adds a level of intimacy that I've, I've never had before. And, and so I, it, it makes me very much connect to the pride that you have from being where you're from, and then also having someone as prominent as Paulo Freire be, you know, someone from your, I guess, like from your region. From the region, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. Okay, well, the last thing I'm going to ask you, uh, formally at least, is are there any resources or anything that you think would be very useful for people to help understand more about Latinx um, Heritage Month or maybe something that educators can implement into their classroom to further celebrate, you know, this month? Do you know where can they go or what can they do? Yeah, absolutely. So for educators, I would recommend the site Teaching Tolerance. Um, they usually, so they're phenomenal about these like celebratory months and, and sort of putting out a suite of resources that, that meet the needs of teachers who want to sort of shift their instruction to really highlight and celebrate those months through their instruction and exploration in the classroom. I would say that for my own personal resources, I love to go to Hip Latina. Um, they usually have like great facts that if you're trying to learn about like what is the state of Latinidad, if you know you could even call that a word or a concept. I know it's highly contested, but like what is the state of Latinidad? They they really I feel like they offer that from a perspective that's really accessible. Something that is underutilized is the Pew Research Center. Like if you want to learn about all of these reports that are coming out from the White House or from different administrations and how they're talking about Latinx folks, it's really important that we educate ourselves from the actual sources, right? Because the media will use a lot of those sources to supplement their coverage, right? And then put whatever spin they want on the coverage based on their own sort of ideologies, right? So it's important that we learn, like, what are these cabinets, you know, these cabinet members writing about the state of, Latin, you know, Latinos or Hispanics, as they still call us in America, because it's important that we know, like, the facts that are out there. For example, as I was spending my time learning about 
some quick Latinx facts. I learned that only 1% of Latinx folks are in federal or elected positions in the United States. Mm. I tell you, 1%, yeah. my jaw dropped. Wow. And so when we know these things, then we can be outraged. And when we are outraged, we can take our anger and channel it into action. And action, which hopefully means you, listener, if you feel like running for office, don't take this as a permission. Take this as a charge. Go do it. You know, and I, I love, I love your, your call to action there because I'm, I was just thinking of that 1%. I, I bet you probably more than half of that 1% is not necessarily representative of that community. You know what I mean? They're probably, I mean, from the ones that I can think of, these people who are of Latinx descent, who are in positions of power, a lot of them I disagree with. A lot of them, I'm like, oh, no, I would never vote for that person. So, I don't know. Yeah, for every AOC, there's a Ted Cruz, there's a Marco Rubio, and there's a Goya CEO. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know exactly what I mean. Well, this has been fantastic, Riza. But before we go, I'm going to ask you a series of rapid fire questions. So what that means is I'm going to ask you a question. And what I want you to do is I want you to listen to the question. And the very first thing that pops into your head, let that be your answer. You good? You ready? Heard it all. <laughs> all right. Ready for this. All right. Here we go. Question number one, coffee or tea? Coffee. If the United States played against Brazil in soccer, who would you root for? Brazil. Who is the best soccer player of all time? Pelé. What's something people tell you you're good at? Soccer. Favorite city to visit? Uh, Paris. What's the next language that you would like to learn? Mandarin. iPhone or Android? iPhone. Who's the best coach of all time? Ooh, Elena Aguilar. <laughs> uh, favorite day of the week? Uh, Fridays, by far. Yes. What's your favorite holiday? This one's a hard one. I have to say my new favorites are between Juneteenth and Indigenous Peoples Day. Mm. Um, because it's about time. Yeah, I know. I know. All right. And this last one, you can probably take your time with this one. But in your opinion, what does someone need to be truly happy? Henry, all these deep questions. <laughs> this is the oh, last one. So first thing that comes to mind is just like be surrounded by loved ones, chosen family, just because you're born into a family doesn't, doesn't mean that that's, you know, the family that brings you joy. Um, you can be happily grafted into a family that isn't the one you're born into that makes you blossom. And then living your purpose and passion, feeling like you're in this, in this world for a reason really makes me personally happy. I absolutely love that. Okay, and this last question is more of a joke. What do you call a guy with a rubber toe? A guy with a rubber toe. I don't know. I'm Roberto. So <laughs> I was going to say something in Spanish. I was like, uh, pie de goma, pie de... I was like, none of these are working. <laughs> Roberto. <laughs> Roberto. That. I feel like we can make a song out of that one. Oh, totally, totally. Maybe you'll be the next one. Maybe you'll be the, the next Roberto song artist. <laughs> All right, and the very last thing I'm going to ask you for real this time is if someone wants to get in touch with you to learn more about you or the work that you do, where can they go or what can they do? Oh, great question. I'm in the process of updating my Instagram, so I both, you know, have the 
kind of the the work that I do in life, but also a little bit of like some of the activism that I've been getting involved with here in DC. Um, so if you want to follow me on Instagram, my handle is M Z L I Z Z Z. So Miss Liz, which is my teacher name. How appropriate. Yep. Yep. Love it. Uh, I'll make sure I put that on the show notes. But other than that, Riza, what a great time I had here chatting with you. I really hope that we stay connected because I, I was so excited when I knew you were like in my network. I was like, oh my gosh, definitely going to connect with her. Thanks, Henry. Appreciate you. Absolutely. Hey, listen, if you ever Thanks decide to come me. down. Yeah, anytime. If you ever decide to come down to New Orleans, let me know. Thanks. Definitely hit you up. All right. Sounds good, Riza. I will talk to you later. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Education Movement Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Riza Lisboa. All of the resources mentioned in this episode can be found on our show notes, including Riza's contact info. You can also contact me through email at theeducationmovement20 at gmail.com or through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the handle edumovement20. As always, thank you to all of you who have already given this podcast likes, follows, and reviews. And if you haven't, what are you waiting for? This movement and platform grows because of listeners like you. Until next time, friends, please remember to stay healthy, stay safe, spread love, and spread hope. Peace.